the Lord be with you. Let us pray. We give you thanks and praise, O Lord, for this day you have created. Be with us. Send your Holy Spirit among us as we listen and learn about ways we might serve your people in this part of the kingdom. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Hello, everybody. Uh, can you hear me okay with this? Okay, um, I'm Elizabeth Hayden, and on behalf of St. Columbus Stirring Water Ministry, for Racial Justice, and the Modern Washington Interfaith Network 14, I'd like to welcome you to today's forum on affordable housing. The shortage of affordable housing in Washington, D.C. affects an astonishingly wide range of our residents, ranging from the most vulnerable and economically disadvantaged to the men and women in working in our schools and retail and service sector. It's a human rights issue and it's a deeply racialized issue. At St. Columbus, the desperate need for more affordable housing across our city has inspired a whole new ministry of advocacy and activism. More than 280 parishioners in 10 actions during 2022's D.C. election season. So how do we ground this affordable housing advocacy in the gospel we preach? And what does affordable housing mean for each of us here, personally, in our own corners of Ward 3 and Montgomery County? To help us in the discussion of bringing affordable housing home, I'm delighted to introduce the Reverend Allison Dunn Almadour, Senior Organizer and Director of Campaigns at the Washington Interfaith Network, or WIN. Allison's been on the front lines lower-income residents organize to safe, clean, and affordable housing since joining WIN's staff in 2014. In that position, she's led the organization's campaigns on affordable housing preservation, public lands, and building black equity through home ownership, among other campaigns. In addition to her campaign leadership, Allison plays key roles in developing effective organizing and advocacy strategies for WIN, and training WIN member organizations across all eight wards of the city on relational power building and how to engage in the public work of social justice through democracy. Allison is an ordained Baptist minister in the progressive Baptist tradition with a master's in divinity from Duke Divinity School. Prior to pursuing a career in community organizing, she served as an interfaith chaplain and worked with low income and diverse communities in a variety of positions. Allison, welcome, and it's great to have you here. Good morning. Wow, this, this is strong. Is the mic working? <laughs> is it too loud or are we good? A little too loud. Okay. That's usually not the problem, right? But. I'm afraid to talk while we're adjusting, but I'll, I'll speak lowly. 
So Elizabeth, thank you for the introduction and thank you all, St. Columbus, for allowing me to be with you today. Is that better? Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Jamal. Good. Okay, good. Well, thank you again. I am excited to be here and grateful to be able to spend this morning with you. So as uh, Elizabeth shared, I come to this work from an ordained uh, ministry position um, in something called the Alliance of Baptists, um, which is a, a strange little progressive uh, world of Baptists um, that my spouse and I um, have been in for a, quite a long time. So Episcopalians are um, some of my best friends and people that I really love to be around. So I'm excited to be here today um, with you all. Um, I first wanted to ask in this room if we can be a little bit um, flexible. I want the second part of this to really be around questions and interactive. So if you thought you were just going to kind of come sit here today, then sorry. Um, this is your chance to run. Um, I'm joking. But how many of you know about when? Um, and I know there's been, okay, great. That's what I assumed, so <laughs> but I wanted to make sure if we need an introduction. So I first want to just share about my own story and how I come to this work um, and how I come to um, being a part of the Washington Interfaith Network. Um, so I was born and raised in Texas. Uh, my family are fifth generation Texans and have time. Uh, my grandparents were tenant farmers. So they were people who picked cotton and moved around to a lot of different places and parts of Texas and had six boys. Because um, if, if any of you have farming in your background, you know that the more kids you have, the more farmers you have, right? So my dad was one of those, and his dream was to move us to the big city of Dallas. So when I was young, um, about two years old, we moved to Dallas, um, and it was there that my brother, sister, and I were raised, really with this idea um, of kind of pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, right? that you could do it. My dad said, you know, we could, he worked his way through college when I was a young person and taught us these values um, that I thought were in scripture for a really long time. And I began to realize as I was raised in Dallas, I was raised in public schools there, which were incredibly formative for me. Young age, um, if anyone knows anything about Dallas public school systems, it's very similar to a lot of large cities. They're deeply, deeply underfunded. And the majority of kids who graduated from my district still had a second grade reading level. So I remember from a young age going through metal detectors in school, having drug dogs every day. That was a normal thing. Um, it was incredibly racially diverse, which is a gift. Um, and it really made me from a young age interrogate the values that I had from my father. So when I was young, there was one other white child in my class, largely African-American and Latino. Um, if you know much about uh, refugee relocation areas, Dallas and Houston are the, some of the two the highest um, because it's hot and it was less expensive. And I remember coming home and saying, you know, Dad, you talk a lot about pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, right? But like all my friends, they have, their parents have like three and four jobs and they work really hard. And for some reason, they're not getting out of public housing. 
Are they still living in areas that are really dangerous and really having a lot of questions but not having answers? And one of the pieces that is really formative about why I kind of went on this trajectory is when I was 13, there was a young boy who was fatally killed right outside of my church. It was across the street um, from my church at my middle school. There was um, a young boy, it was a gang initiation. And I remember going to my pastor and asking, what do we do? And his response was, Allison, we pray. And I asked, and then? Like, and then what? Come on, there's got to be something else. What do we do? And it's been my journey and my trajectory to figure out what do we do when it comes to systemic injustice, systemic racism, all of the pieces in our world um, that are falling apart. What do we do as people of faith? How are we called to act and move and pray and be guided by prayer, but then move and act in the world to create change? So as Elizabeth shared, my story led me to study religion, led me to seminary, where I was able to see language and understand um, how these pieces fit together, to understand there were reasons that my school district and the things that I experienced and my friends experienced were designed the way they were. So I share that story because I believe my formative experiences led me into the work because it was about relationship fundamentally. And organizing and the work of WIND and the Washington Interfaith Network is fundamentally about relationship. It's who are we in relationship to, who do we encounter, and how do we come to know people across race, class, religion, and even um, political sectors as well. So I first want to um, lay out within organizing a couple of different uh, pieces of the ecosystem of change. And many of you know this, this is not a quiz, but it's the way I like to differentiate how WIN works. So in the ecosystem of change, we have a lot of ways to make change. And I know many of you do change and change work professionally and as a part of the congregation. So the first that we label is charity. So I want to ask, when you think charity or direct service, um, what are examples that you have here or in your life that you've experienced? Charity or this work? Yeah, the toys this morning. The water ministry. The water ministry, which I've heard wonderful things about. Jubilee housing. Jubilee housing, exactly. Food insecurity and food banks in ways like that. Absolutely. And we need those things, right? We have to have, we have, to have um, opportunities for people who are suffering in the moment to be able to have a home, to be able to have toys, to be able to have shoes on their feet. We need those pieces, and it's incredibly important and informative. And the next piece that we like to go to is advocacy. Does anyone have examples of advocacy that they've been involved in? Reparations. Reparations. Public hearings. Public hearings. Absolutely. Housing justice organizing for Ward 3. Absolutely. Yes. Housing justice advocacy for Ward 3. I put that kind of on the edge of advocacy and the next one being organizing. 
And we separate those out not because they're clear boxes. As you all know, nothing, nothing is easily cut into one, two, three boxes. That there's lots of um, there's lots of layers and lots of strengths and weaknesses for each one. So you've got to have it, but there are limits, and a lot of times it maintains power dynamics. A lot of times it's one group giving something to another group who's in need, and it doesn't really wrestle with why that other group, in fact, that they shouldn't be other, but why they are in need in the first place. And the second piece around advocacy, again, incredibly important. And I found it's incredibly and meaningful important, particularly for people who are unable to speak for themselves. Children, for example, those who are incarcerated who don't have the ability to vote. Um, there are times that advocacy is incredibly um, needed, but other times it also doesn't disrupt the power dynamics. It's one group speaking for another recognizing that the other group who cannot speak is not maybe afraid to speak, but as we know, silenced, who is unable to speak. And then the third, organizing, is another piece. It's not better, it's different. And each of these, I believe, that the church is called to. And after spending about 10 years professionally working with churches and organizing spaces, I realized over and over that churches, we've gotten so good at doing the direct service and charity. We've gotten good at doing the advocacy, but sometimes organizing is hard, is the harder piece. It's not as well known in our congregations. And organizing fundamentally is about systemic change and recognizing that if we have systems in our world and in our society that are keeping people trapped in certain spaces, we've got to change the systems. And one thing I'm doing in chaplaincy is that you cannot change systemic issues through direct service. You cannot direct service your way out of systemic issues. And it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's impossible, quite frankly, because it's not getting at the same piece. So I want to share an example of about how when came to be. Was anyone around during the founding of when or involved? That's amazing. It's wonderful. And you can correct my story after. Um, <laughs> but the story that the founders taught me was that many of our congregations who first wanted to build this type of organization had been organizing, particularly downtown and other areas, and each of these congregations had direct service ministries. They had really strong food banks and had really strong um, homeless outreach centers that they had started um, and provided coats and food and material needs that people needed. But over and over when these pastors started talking together and these lay leaders who were leading the programs, they began to realize, whoa, Bobby or Freddie or so-and-so comes to your church too? And why, for some reason, have these same people who've been unhoused, why are they still coming to these ministries five and ten years later? And one of the biggest things that people began to realize was that, A, it was lack of the ability to have affordable housing. Many of the people that were coming um, to receive direct service had jobs. It's just that they could not afford to have and maintain housing. 
The second piece was that there were many who had cognitive disabilities who recognized we need something called permanent supportive housing has kind of become one of the answers in DC is where people um, have housing where they can maintain safe and healthy places to live. So that was the inception of WIN, is these congregations came together, started talking to some of the mosques and synagogues and realizing we all had the same issues. And they said, how can we not just do the direct service work, how can we actually listen to our neighbors and do the organizing? So they began doing one-on-one -on -one listening sessions hearing what the unhoused people who were coming to their programs needed and wanted and saying affordable housing is something that we need to do. How do we get there? We can't just build it on our own. We also have to recognize that we've got to change policy. So that's the inception. And since when, about 27 years, that's a brief snippet of it, we've worked on housing in a ton of different ways. We've worked on housing through um, public lands, We've worked on housing, which means taking public lands and saying, this is a public good and resource. How can we shape this public land um, to best serve our communities? We've also worked in public housing um, and in home ownership um, and increasing and changing RFPs as well, um, the request for proposals that come from the district. So I want to just take a moment there to step back and ask, are there any thoughts or questions around the difference um, between these models of change um, or around what I've said so far? Well, you talked about um, when organizing around public housing, for example. Mm -hmm. Since we're um, recording this, I'd really like you to use the, uh, this. It'll make it easier for people to hear. All right. I'm sorry. I'm talking um, Nice to meet you. Uh, you talked about organizing around public housing. Um, you know, it, it is shocking to read uh, the report of HUD, the, the Federal Housing Agency, of DC's unbelievable neglect and right. mismanagement of public housing. What, if anything, has WIN done about that, and can WIN do anything about it? I see this as sort of one of the major crises in our city. Absolutely. I think that is a major crisis. So thanks for bringing that up. Yes, so the question was around one of the biggest issues right now in the district that we see in the post and everywhere is about um, public housing and how our agency in DC has failed. Um, if people have read some of those articles, it's really, really, really um, disheartening. So we have not worked on public housing for long periods of time. We, we have worked in iterations in different properties. So the way we do in organizing, it's less around writ large policy, but it's around particular groups and communities of people that we engage with. Um, so for example, um, First Rock Church has been a long time founding member of WIN in Ward 7 and Benning Terrace. And over the years, WIN has organized with residents um, to make a ton of changes. From getting a new football field and getting children um, extracurricular activities, also making sure that they got um, more mediation and some redevelopment. So it's with particular. And over the past two years, we've worked with about five properties uh, to organize residents to lead in their redevelopment processes and also in their um, in some of the particular issues. 
And stepping back, our, our resident team is asking, we've been meeting with Director Donald about the larger pieces that we can change and affect. And the number one thing that organizing says is that it's people over policy and that we believe people who are directly affected are the experts. So how can we organize directly affected people and then go and meet with housing policy experts to figure out what are the things that resonate and what makes sense to work together? So starting um, right before the pandemic, we had a group of about 10 residents and about uh, 20 members of WIN from our different congregations who, when this happened, we were like, oh, well, we can't do the same type of door knocking um, that we normally do. So we started meeting um, with different representatives from different states. We've met with a ton of different HUD representatives um, from New York to California to Massachusetts, some who had done successful build first program. Um, and we came up with something called Rad Done Right. Is one of the tools that the federal government gives around redevelopment of affordable housing. So not to open up a whole can of worms, but the federal government is trying to get out of the business of housing. I mean, that's what we've known since um, before the Trump administration, is that federal government has lessened money over years on how much they give to housing authorities. So RAD is a tool to be able to help give um, redevelopment funding to particular public housing authorities in conjunction sometimes with nonprofit and private developers to redevelop. So our work has been really working with um, and coming up with this plan that's resident-led development. Um, and we have been meeting with a director around this and the fundamental piece that we are struggling with and that we always struggle with is power. And that's what I wanna bring it back to, not to change from your question, Sandra, because I think that's the pieces that we have done is we've worked with five communities. We've got lead and mold remediation and emergency repairs fixed um, in those communities and, um, and really developed resident teams who are leading on their own, um, which is exciting work. And it's also one tiny piece of it. And the reason that uh, organizing is different, lastly, is because of, of power. It fundamentally teaches, again, that we have to organize power and use it in a different way to be able to create change. And I know sometimes power is one of those words that makes people nervous. I will tell you that before organizing, it made me incredibly nervous, um, is that power is something that I, don't, I didn't always want. And I'm curious, when I say, do you want power, or how does power feel when I ask you, what is, what's your reaction? And you may have heard this you know, from your pastor or from other people, so, but. Power corrupts. Power corrupts. Politics. Politics. Anything else? Device ability to do good. Ability to do good. Preach. That's good. <laughs> and when you say politics, I'm just curious what comes to mind in particular. Partisan politics. Partisan politics. Yes. Problem with getting the power to do this kind of thing. Right. I think, I think one uh, problem we have Friendship Terraces dealing with the uh, D.C. Housing Authority mm -hmm. because they're not, they don't work directly with the district. They are a, an independent 
because some of our residents have signed uh, vouchers mm -hmm. to, to uh, lower their rent, and that varies because some people have higher rent, so they have to pay higher. But I believe DCHA has, has, has been dragging their feet, and I've been hearing on the news that they're really not very well they don't organized or run. That, no, they're not very well organized. Mm -hmm. May I repeat what you said so folks can hear it? So one of the one of uh, the statements was around um, residents working with friendship, which which property? Friendship Terrace. Terrace. This one, okay. With Friendship Terrace behind me, I was like, I didn't hear. Um, there are a lot of friendships. Friendship Terrace was people taking residents taking vouchers and moving um, and going to other places, and then the second layer of it being DCHA um, hearing that it's not always the most organized um, government agency, which is. Not too much of a surprise um, for a lot of our agencies, but I, I really am grateful for folks sharing what you said about power. Um, that a lot of times when you said power corrupts, I, I, I liked that because it is so much of how we think about it in our guts um, is that we have seen power corrupt so often. And that's that Lord Acton quote And the second, the second part of that quote is absolute powerlessness corrupts absolutely. And when I stepped back and it, I started to think about it, I was like, how much if we fear power, if we don't talk about it or interrogate how we're thinking about power, are we, are we giving powerlessness more power? And I don't know about you, but I've seen people in powerless situations and a lot of those situations I've seen in public housing communities. And I have started, when I first started organizing, just started asking this question everywhere and really wrestling with me about myself, where, where did the, the views of power come from that I was taught? And what are the visions of power that I see in my life? And you know what? A lot of times we see power on a public stage in really, really dominant, and really aggressive and negative ways. We see it in politics when, when people you know, get elected off of values, right? Or values that are supposed to be healthy and it ends up being something that is punishing people. Or we see people in politics who um, make writ large decisions that affect large groups of people without ever talking to them. We see people on a, a smaller scale in our own lives. If you've ever been fired, or even when you think about, I've got two children, right? When I think about my own kids, when, when I wanna say that, because I told you so, right? When I told you, I told you so, you know? I don't wanna have to deal with why, but just this is, this is the answer and then we're moving on. But thinking about power from our internal and our family situations all the way to the public sphere, most of the time we see it in a really negative light. We see it in a, in a place that is misused and abused. And in organizing, we teach that and say that that's something called dominant power. And dominant power is power that corrupts. It's power that um, is deeply painful. And if you've lived in a human experience, you've probably experienced that dominant power against yourself. 
in the workplace or home or in other places. It's power that does not have that forces um, that forces uh, forces a decision on another person, often through violence, often through coercion. And when we teach power, oh yes. Oh, you finish. I just had a. Uh, how does WIN select the properties that they work with, and how, if you have a property, do you get on the list or? Help mm -hmm. I will get. To, I will get to that. Sorry Thank to you. No, it's okay. Um, it is, and I think the other piece. Uh, it's all connected. The other piece is relational. Is that power in the way that we hope to teach? I believe not even just in organizing, but as people of faith, is that power. Opposite end of it, power is relational power, and it's power of the collective. Where when I know Elizabeth and Elizabeth knows um, another person, another person, another person, we come together, and we have power. Power is made up of two things: of organized people and organized money. And a lot of times we see organized money moving in our world, especially in politics, right, and in the government. We see it in, in affordable housing complexes. We see it's in condos being built. Um, it's because we've got more money, we can build this, um, and you don't have to, to weigh in sometimes, right? Um, and the pieces that, again, I'm asking you to interrogate is what in your gut keeps you from wanting power? And recognizing that is there a way that we as people of faith could want power that may be in a healthy way? Power that leads to change, that relational power that lifts up and says, the world doesn't have to be this way, and we shouldn't have living with rats and mold and roaches, and that we can use our collective people power to stand up, not to dominate, but to stand up and say, we all deserve dignity, and we're going to stand together and say, there's another type of power. And that's what I hope that we can walk away with today, at least thinking about more. Power is something that we can use for good. Dr. King talked about power as a hammer. There's lots of different ways. Sometimes he talked about it as something positive, and sometimes he talked about it as something neutral. Is that you can use a hammer to hit someone over the head, right? But also, you can't build a house without it. You need that tool, and if power is a tool, we as people of faith say we want to use power in a way that creates the kingdom of heaven on earth. So the, the piece that I want to ground power in and that I work to every day in my ministry to ground power in is in the sermon when he calls and talks about um, this, this beloved community that we're calling people to, where the first church in Acts took that message so seriously that they said, we're going to give of what we had so that no one was in need. I can't imagine <laughs> thinking about that no one was in need. It was fundamentally about reshaping power and wealth and how that we use what we're given to take care of our neighbor. And that's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable, right? When you think about um, the story of the rich young ruler, it's Jesus gave the rich young ruler the exact opportunity of discipleship. John, the same exact invitation. But he thought about it and he thought, oh, the response or what I have to do in order to follow you is going to cost me too much. And he said, no. 
And I get that, <laughs> right? A lot of times we other him and we're like, that guy's crazy, how could he have done that? But ah, uh, think about how uncomfortable, right? I get that. And we look at his, his, his the kind of opposite character was Zacchaeus, someone who had, had accumulated of wealth, but also gave of wealth. There are people throughout scripture and stories throughout scripture of, of people on, on all sides giving of what they had, wealthy, not wealthy, and some people wealthy, not wealthy, who chose not to give. And the reason I share this is because what I believe is that we are called to share and use our power. And that power is one of the currencies that we as people of faith, if we can figure out how to use well, we can change our communities. When I ask, do you want power? In our Congress, and if, if you're gonna bear with me, right? I am, I'm a white woman and I work a lot in communities of color and a lot in white, in white spaces as well. And what I've learned over 10 years asking this question is when I ask our, our, um, our white congregations and our congregations who are just affluent, black and Latino, who class as well, the answer is, I don't know if I really want power. I kind of feel icky and I don't use it in a way that's dominant. Because we see it, right, all the time is used in dominant ways. And then, when I've gone to public housing and when I've gone in spaces uh, working with immigrant rights, and I ask the question, do you want power? The answer is always a resounding yes. Yes. at me in public housing and said, do I want power? Yes, I want power to be able to say I don't want mold in my house for the last 10 years that's affecting my babies. I want that power because that power allows me to do something different. And that to me, those conversations and relationships really are what made me change how I felt Power is fundamentally something that people with struggle with in a different way than people who don't often have power in the same way. And not to say residents of housing don't have power, they do. And that is the goal of organizing, is to teach how residents who are often silenced and pushed aside can build power through relationships. So one of the stories that um, has challenged me the most and that I, one of the campaigns that I'm also the most proud of is a story um, around temple courts. Does anyone know where certain court I was or where, um, help me out on the, the school that's right there, Gonzaga? So right across the street from Gonzaga, you may have remembered, um, there's a building called Temple Courts, um, which was there about 12 years ago. 12 years ago, it was knocked down because there were um, really bad issues with management, um, mold, rats, roaches, trash started building up so much that management companies stopped coming to pick it up um, and it just deteriorated. So suddenly, that went up on the walls um, that said, you've got to move out within three weeks on all the residents. It's a bright yellow piece of paper. And it was shut down with a ton of promises by the district that people would get the right to return and then back. So about seven and a half years ago, one of our WIND teams, we had a, a Baptist congregation 
and a, um, and a Catholic congregation in that neighborhood, Catholic parish, who started organizing together. And it was the very beginning of our organizing, and we just started going around pre-pandemic, if you remember, talking to strangers and knocking on doors, right? And listening, talking to people on the corners, talking to people who lived in the apartments, and just asking, you know, we're with this congregation right down the street, and we're wanting to know if there's one thing you can change in this community, what would it be? What would that one thing be? We started hearing over and over people saying, hey, I used to live in this building over here called Temple Courts, and we were promised we could come back, but we still haven't been able to come back. We started young people. I met two young people, his brother, who said, we've been homeless for years because we were supposed to come back and we don't have a shot and our job is here, but there's no place to live <laughs> that we can afford. So we kind of couch surf and started meeting people and putting faces and hearing the struggles and saying, what could we do? So the first thing we did is our group of church folks said, hey, if you guys really care about this, like, what would you want to do? And we started hearing residents saying, we'd want to rebuild it. So we said, well, let's gather and let's have a meeting and kind of talk about what organizing could look like. So we gathered in, um, it was about a week later in Holy Redeemer Church, which is an old Catholic basement uh, in North, if you, anyone knows that congregation. Twenty, 20 of our church folks from Wynn gathered. And no residents, no former residents. We started getting a little nervous. And then about 7.05, no one's there. And then at 7.08, about 15 former residents came in who were very skeptical, but came in and said, hey, let's, let's talk about this property temple courts. We started building relationships, started getting to know one another, and recognized that the number one thing we needed to do first was to ensure that we knew each other, that we knew what residents wanted, and we knew their story. And they told the story of Temple Courts, how it was knocked down, those yellow papers, the things that have changed, the seniors that who had passed away because they didn't have family yet, and they were separated from their community, and no longer knew how to get to the grocery store, no longer had the residents in 28, um, you know, 28B down the street or down the hall who took care of them and checked on them. Those were the stories that we began to hear. And we also began to hear this ability to act, the sense, first off, of powerlessness and the residents not being able to do something, and then the powerlessness of our congregation members wanting to do something, recognizing we can't get this building up, we don't have the money, we don't have a developer, what do we do? This land is owned by the district. So the first step we did is we organized, learned about the covenants on the land, and the agreements, and we went to Charles Allen, who was, has been there for a long time, known, and we had, we organized about 350 people. And 350 people came to this congregation with Councilmember Allen, and we said, hey, this is your ward, and we really want to ensure that there's funding to be able to rebuild temple courts. And one of the key leaders, Nathan Brown, who's a young man who grew up there, and now as a father um, himself of three children, he led the, the organizing work of residents. And he spoke and said, um, Councilmember Allen, you have to promise that you are going to help us rebuild Temple Courts. And of course, as a politician in front of 350 people, right? He said, yes, 
we're going to do it. And afterwards, Nathan came to some of our wind folks and, and looked at me and said, Allison, without this work, I wouldn't have known that my voice mattered. I knew I had a voice, but nobody cared. And now I get it. And I know that when I have people backing me from different walks of life, that it matters and that people listen when we're together. And when we went to the mayor after that, because we realized Charles Allen was a great advocate, but he didn't have the money and didn't have the resources to do it, we had to go back to win. And a year later, we had to go back to the mayor with a thousand people. And the thing that scares the mayor about Wynne, and sometimes what also doesn't scare that she likes to work with us is because it's this crazy multiracial coalition of people from all eight wards and all walks of life and all different faiths. And it's strange that we're saying the same thing because we've done the relational work to get there and to listen people directly affected to know what they need. So there we said to the mayor, we need funding and we want to ensure that this gets through. Again, the mayor said yes. Six months later, when she got elected, she said, nope, not a priority. We put a thousand people again in a room and said, oh, but you promised, and we all saw it, and organized consistently and persistently. And if you now go and look on North Capitol and K, after a ton of work with the DC Housing Authority to make sure they actually approve the vouchers, and a ton of organizing to press for the money, the first phase of Rise at Temple Courts, which was named by the resident community, has been rebuilt. It's been rebuilt because people of faith used their power. And it was uncomfortable at times when our pastors who were close with Councilmember Allen said, if you don't put the money in now, we're not gonna be able to get it through this legislative cycle. We had to put intention and we had to use voter power to get it through. And that first phase, what we fought for is a third, a third, a third. A third market rate, a third middle income, and a third low income. Because our team did research nationally of what was the best economically and the best for residents. And residents looked at us and said, look, we don't want to live in segregated housing. Nobody does. We want to be able to live in a, in a community that flourishes. We know this from studies in schools, right? If we economically put kids on a different, a low-income bracket all by themselves in one school, we don't have success opportunities. But when we mix people up, right, everyone succeeds. So that's the model of housing that we often fight for, and that's implemented there now. Is it without problem? No, obviously not. There's always problems but it's always beautiful and powerful. And seeing residents who've moved in now, we have 24 former residents and children um, who've been able to move in. And it took way too long, but it happened. And it was because people used people power to say that this is something that we can do to reshape our communities, to say that these folks that lived here have the right to return and that we're gonna make it so. So there are 211 replacement units that will be built, plus mixed income housing on it. And only the first phase is done. But we're incredibly excited of a tangible way that we can see how people of faith helped reshape and use our power to change our communities. So. Uh, I think we have a minute or two. Um, I'm sorry, we took the- questions, no, that's okay. Um, but uh, this along. Thank you very much.
great presentation. I think what you talked about, the one-third, 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 mm -hmm. it's also very, you have to look at the politics. That's politically sad because that brings in new people you can. And secondly, what you're also talking about there is public-private partnerships, which mm -hmm. are what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. I guess I didn't have a question. Thank you. No, absolutely. Thank you. Six, um, yeah. What's happening here? Why does this matter to the people of this congregation? So that's a great question, and I apologize for not starting it sooner. Um, but for Ward 3, you play a critical role. And I know many of you have done work um, and are doing the Christmas party with Brooks and having, um, having that shelter be supported and the family emergency housing. The piece that I want to share so important is that Ward 3, as we know, is one of the wealthier wards, right? It's one of the wards where redlining, when we look at history, was incredibly present and incredibly deep. That this um, ward was built off, off systemic racism and segregation. And when, one of the things that Reverend Lamar talks about, who's one of our co-chairs in WIN, we have to have the power to redo the systems. We didn't create the systems in this room, right? We benefit, but how can we use our power to say no more? How can we use our power to say that that may have been something that happened in the past, but we can create opportunities for mixed income flourishing here in Ward 3? And a lot of times in our district, what we're seeing right now is developers and the district working together to say, oh, we can have more affordable housing. Let's put it east of the river. And okay. You need it there, but there's a ton there. Where we need it is here. And the door knocking that we've done and that some of you have been engaged in is listening to the teachers and the folks who work at the apartment complexes, the crossing guards here who say, I could never live in this neighborhood. I could never afford it. But what, what would it take for our congregations to say, that's not gonna stand anymore, that our teachers, our firefighters, our police officers, our nurses, have the ability to, to live where they work, like we all want. And then beyond that, when we think about our public housing residents too, those who are 30% and below the income. When we did work with folks in the Brooks and folks in um, DC General years ago to start that campaign, as many of you know, the majority of, of the people who lived there had jobs. They had jobs, they're working. It's the systems that are not allowing to ensure that we have the mixed income levels of, of affordability so that everybody can thrive and flourish. And I believe that as people of faith, that's what we're called to help reshape so that we can have, and again, housing is just one piece of this, of making this community come true that Jesus was talking about, right? It's one piece, but it's one way that we can really ensure that people have a right um, to live. How, again, how does one engage with WIN to help get your community organized or get something going? What do you suggest? Absolutely. So one of the first ways that um, we, we work is that we do not go into communities where we're not invited. So we organize when we're invited by a tenant and usually when we have 
in MIR. So for example, we have teams where we have member congregations. We're not just gonna go pick a place in Ward 8 or Ward 4 or Ward 3, but we go to our member organizations and do work around that neighborhood. So those are all the public housing, for example, that we do. Um, and the climate work or the black home ownership work we do is around member institutions. And if, organize, if residents organize themselves and want to engage, um, then we also work with residents that way and invite us in. I would also add um, to that, Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just given the time signal. Okay. So for those who want to stay, I can answer that question on the microphone. If people Thank you so much, everybody. I'm not sure I'll have your email. 